0: Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to pick up at verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, that's a Roman soldier, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him, and the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word. And my servant will be healed, for I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, exclamation point. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed from that same hour. Now, don't turn there. I'll read it to you. It's another account in the book of Luke of the exact same event, but there's another insight that I want you to hear. So just listen as I read Luke 7. Now, when Jesus concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with Jesus to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him. These, these Jewish people were begging on behalf of the centurion, on behalf of his servant, begging Jesus, earnestly saying, the one for whom Jesus should do this was deserving he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. So the centurion had built a synagogue for the Jews, and they were pleading on his behalf that Jesus would, would yield his request and heal his servant. Interesting insight. We'll take a look at it, but let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, would you bless our time in your word? Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would gently and lovingly, as you always do, reveal to us what it is you desire us to do. And that you would equip us by your spirit to accomplish that for your glory. And so, God, we avail ourselves. We yield. So be blessed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem and then warned in a dream to his parents They had to flee to Egypt. When they returned from Egypt, they came to Nazareth. And when they came to Nazareth, Jesus began his carpentry business there. And then as we have been following through the book of Matthew now, he goes from Nazareth and he comes into the land of of what Isaiah called in Isaiah 9. And we saw in Matthew chapter 4, Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali are a portion of an area where when the kingdom broke under Solomon, uh, these folks remained in the north, and they became pretty much of no significance and no issue. But it was written of Naphtali in Deuteronomy 33, this region where Jesus is now choosing to minister. It says, oh, uh, and of Naphtali, God says, O oh, Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. And they remained in the north. <laughs> they never did that. And and then Isaiah says in Isaiah 9 that into a great darkness a light is shown. And speaking of the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, because they hadn't embraced Deuteronomy 33, and they had remained without being stretched and challenged and doing what God had called them, and they rested in their abundance and being satisfied with favor and the blessing of the Lord, they remained where they were, and they became stagnant and stale. And in this region, it became a place of prostitution and crime, and it became overwhelming because it was a nation of self-indulgence or region of self-indulgence. It became a trade route, and in this region of Zebulun and Naphtali resided a city called Capernaum. Capernaum was on a trade route. It had a tax collector, which was very important, the Roman government executing its its will upon the the known world, had set up a tax collector. And to have a tax collector there, you needed a Roman contingent because people are not easily separated from their money. And so they assigned a centurion. Now, a centurion is the NCO, non-commissioned officer, the backbone of the Roman army. To be a centurion, you have to rise in the ranks through accomplishment on the battlefield. You're a seasoned veteran, and it's extended to you this, this leadership position and when we get the word century, which means a hundred years, centurion means a man over a hundred soldiers. And so he commands a regiment of a hundred soldiers, and to serve, you, you are committed to a term of 25 years at a minimum to serve your post. Now, the last post in the Roman Empire that anyone wanted to serve in was in Israel, it was considered the backwater segment. It was the place where there was the greatest danger, the most rebellion. They would have endless rebellion. If you've ever been to Israel, and we're going to get, again go in November, please come with us. We go up to Masada. Masada was the last piece of ground the Israelites held as the Romans were trying to siege this this uh, this section that remained in the wilderness they wouldn't even allow any jews to hold any property and so they they set up ramps and they attacked them and the jews so not wanting to be killed by romans had one person draw straws they found the the elements in the archaeological dig of the the in a sense the the straws that they drew um, to pick who would be the one who would have to kill himself which was a violation of Jewish law. But instead of being killed by a Roman, what they did is they killed each of the remaining survivors and then they killed themselves so as not to be touched by the Gentile hands of the pagans of the polytheistic pantheon of God's Romans. And every Jewish a uh, uh, young person, uh, g- male or female, that enters into the Israeli Defense Force in their training, they all take them up to ne- to, to uh, Masada, and they tell them, "This was the last ground that Jews held before the Romans took them over, and for thousands of years we never had a homeland until now, and we will never allow this to happen again." We will. D-. This is like the Alamo for the Jew, and it's instilled in every Jewish soldier, and they grasp it and they understand it. And, and they, they so were committed to their, to their identity as a nation that they trained their soldiers to understand this. And I've been to Masada, and I've seen this. Well, this is a centurion. He has, been, he has been positioned in this region, which is the worst region to be positioned in, but they picked him because he's the most qualified, which means he's ruthless, He's ruthless and he can hold back the oppression of these rebels. He can put the boot of Rome upon the neck of anyone who would seek to rise. And this is a, this is an area in the Roman Empire that needs the strongest of soldiers. And so the centurion is placed there for a 25 year stay. He has a hundred soldiers under his authority. He's, he's committed to a precept and ultimately the authority of Caesar, who is, uh, who has been d- designated by himself a god, um, is now giving this authority to the centurion who represents Rome. And now we see the picture of who this man is. And the centurion has servants. Now, in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And slaves were considered less than human. You were allowed to kill a slave if they broke your dishes. Uh, and you didn't have to give a formal burial. You could put them in the back of your yard, dig a hole, and drop a servant in there who had died. You could burn them. You could do anything you pleased. They were, they were cattle. They were chattel. They could be bought and sold. They were not human. They were irrelevant. They were simply there to push forward the will of Rome. They were under rowers i didn 't even want to know your name. You just take a number and row and this is this is this man he is given a contingent of servants and a hundred soldiers, and he is he is affecting the will upon Israel uh, as, as the nation of Rome has now suppressed the the known world and in this region, in this trade route in the northern section of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is inundated with ignorance inundated with prejudice inundated with with crime prostitution. On and on and on. As as we remember, Philip saying, Can anything good come of Nazareth? Which means anything good come out of this region of Zebulun and Naphtali? No. And then into this darkness, a great light is shown. So Jesus would step and put the center of his operations right there in Capernaum. In Capernaum is the oldest, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, synagogues in the entirety of the world. We'll visit that synagogue. And what's fascinating about this synagogue is it says Jesus entered into Capernaum where the synagogue rested, and a centurion came to him, and he's pleading with him. He's begging him. Now, in this synagogue is a synagogue that this centurion that we found out in Luke chapter 7 built. I want to show you a picture. Do we have that picture? Uh, If you go to Israel in Capernaum, this is the synagogue. Now you see on the top, you see these white stones. That was built in the fifth and sixth century by the Romans, but below it you see the basalt, the darker stone. Do you see that? That was what this centurion built. He paid to build that. That was the that was the foundation of the old synagogue. The one you see was one built in the fifth and sixth century. This one was built by the centurion with his own money. Isn't that fascinating? This would be the center of operations. Again, another picture of of the level. You can see the old synagogue and the new one on top of it. And this was paid for by this Roman pagan, this polytheistic, pagan-worshipping, oppressive centurion paid for a place of worship for these monotheistic Jews. Kind of gives you a better description. Now, this is what's fascinating to me. It says that Jesus entered Capernaum, and a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. Now for a Jew, a male Jew would wake up every morning and say, I thank God I was not born a woman, a dog, or a Gentile, in that order. And that was their culture. Now, you can take offense to that, and probably we should. And we can look at other cultures and take offense at the way they put a strata or a structure on humanity. The Jews did it too. And so a Jewish man would wake up and say, I thank God I wasn't born a woman, a dog, or a Gentile. Gentiles were below dogs. Every Jew looked at that centurion as a is less than a dog, and the term dog is a wild dog, not even a pet, worthless, and in addition, not only was it a worthless Gentile less than a wild dog, but they were the oppressors of our nation, and we hate them, and we will kill them, and revolt after revolt and rebellion after rebellion you just study the works of josephus you can see exactly how the jews felt about the romans and in addition how the romans felt about the jews the romans looked at the jews as worthless they were in the way they would ultimately burn their temple and leave no stone unturned because the gold of the uh, of of all the 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 elements in the temple would burn and the gold would melt into the crevices of these massive stones, and the the soldiers, Roman soldiers, would tear apart the temple. And we'll see that they didn't leave one stone unturned just to find the scraps of gold. These are cultures that absolutely, I, I can't even emphasize enough, hated each other. Hated each other. And this man comes to Jesus and pleads with him, begging him. Luke says, it wasn't even him who came first. It was Jews that came on his bequest. And these Jews, these leaders of Capernaum, these Jews that worshiped in, the, in that synagogue that I showed you, these Jews came and were prostrate before the Lord, begging him on behalf of the centurion and his servant to heed the will of the centurion to heal his servant. You want to talk about a cultural mind blow, You look at that, and it doesn't make sense. It'd be like this church going over and building that mosque. Well, maybe that didn't resonate well enough. guess you're all ready to do that. I didn't see you Sunday. I was looking for you. It's frightening, isn't it? And I'm not saying that derogatorily. I'm saying it's a challenge for us. This is what you see here. And he pleads, and these Jews plead on his behalf. Matthew says he ultimately presses through the crowd and pleads on his behalf for the sake of the servant. And the way he pleads is fascinating. He says, Lord. That's dangerous for a Roman centurion to use that word, Lord. There's only one Lord in all of Rome, and that's Caesar. And for him to call Jesus Lord, his position is in jeopardy. His effectiveness is what keeps him in office, but he is walking a very thin line. He has been successful in holding down the rebellion of the Jews, and he's done it in a way that Rome wasn't interested in. They were thinking more of lopping off heads and removing these people than trying to work with them. And he comes to Jesus, and he calls him Lord, very dangerous for a Roman centurion. He immediately recognizes his authority, and he submits to it, and when it says he pleads with him, the idea is he prostrates himself before God and he says, Lord, my servant. And the word servant used both in Luke and also in Matthew is a depiction not of what we see in the scriptures of doulos, which is bondslaver, under rower, which is the lowest form of a servant, which means you don't have a name, you get a number and you row. The term here for servant is this idea of almost like my family. He's dear to me. And he says this dear servant is lying at home paralyzed and dreadfully tormented and jesus said to him i'll come and heal him jesus had just finished healing the man with leprosy he touched him remember that he says i'll come and i'll heal him I, I i will do this the centurion answered and this is fascinating again he uses the term lord he says lord recognizing his authority recognizing his position he says lord i'm not worthy that you should come under my roof Now I represent the highest ranking aspect with the exception of the precept here in, in Judea, but I, I recognize your authority. I'm not even fit to come in that you're, I'm not fit that you would come into my house. Someone of your stature, someone of your position is not worthy, even though he's probably the third highest ranking Roman in the region. He says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word. I realize the authority of your word. An executive order given by the president of the United States causes every airport in America to be in chaos and the nation to be split and to see protests and 600 to 1,000 people out on Borchardt Avenue and let alone what's happening across the country. One word of a president has that, that ability. Words are powerful. Words are powerful. You've heard me say before, you don't need a gun to kill your children. You can just look at them and say, you're stupid and you're ugly and your mother and I wish you were never born. Those are powerful words. He says, Lord, I know all you need to do is speak the word. The power you possess, I've seen it. And in in Capernaum and Zebulun and Naphtali, where where 80 to 90% of all the miracles Jesus ever did, he did right here in this city. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in the later chapter of Romans 8, or excuse me, Matthew 8, that he heals all the sick in the city. That's a pretty decent miracle, I'd say, to move that city. Anyone with me? Well, that's why the Lord said, in Mark chapter six, the secondary aspect of this marvelled. You see, in Matthew eight, he said, "Lord, you only need to speak the speak a word, and my servant will be healed." And then he just, he defines why he knows this to be true. He says. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it like an executive order. Yes? When Jesus heard it, he marveled. He marveled. To make God marvel is pretty remarkable. He marveled only one other time in Scripture. The only other time in Scripture where he marveled, we see in Mark 6 and Matthew 11. Let me read Matthew 11. It doesn't say marveled here, but I want to tell you why he marveled. Matthew 11, he says to Capernaum, as he's laying out judgment, he says, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to hell, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There was a very low conversion rate and Capernaum, they saw all the miracles. Miracles don't save people. They were so religious and so bigoted and so prejudiced that, that regardless of all the miracles, everyone in the city was healed, and yet nobody worshiped the Lord. And the condemnation came, and Mark points it out, but Jesus said to them in relation to this area, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about the villages in a circuit teaching he looked at Capernaum he looked at Zebulun and Naphtali and he marveled at their unbelief pause for emphasis Naphtali prophesied in Deuteronomy satisfied with favor full of blessing of the Lord called to possess the West. But we're more concerned with our possessions and our prejudice and our barriers that we do not yield to his kingdom because our kingdom takes precedent. And we're scared. We want to enact our will. And into this darkness, into this place where the where God marveled twice, one at the faith of a, of a pagan polytheistic Roman brutal centurion, he marveled and at the unbelief of the religiosity of those who were in the same region. He marvels at the faith of a centurion pagan. Why? When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not in even in Israel. I haven't seen it in the land that declares they worship me, that they love me with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. I haven't seen it. I've seen it more in the centurion pagan than I've seen it in the faithful in all of Israel. Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel, and I say to you that many, not all, but many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many will be saved from around the world, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. I'm blessed by this. I'm blessed by a man that would pledge... His submission to God and when he came to him and he called him Lord basically what he's saying is he says master I understand how a kingdom works I bow to Caesar and thus all the authority of Rome is at my disposal in the early chapters of Mark it was it was the Jews that said of Jesus he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub he casts out demons by the power of Satan and Jesus looks at him he says are you idiots basically this is Rob's translation A kingdom divided will not stand against itself. Even evil understands authority. Satan's not going to kick out demons. Hello? Everyone understands authority. North Korea understands authority, right? You don't submit to it, you die. Everyone understands authority. And he, he says to him, Master, I understand how a kingdom works. I'm under the most expansive kingdom on the face of the earth. I have all the resources of Rome and the the authority of Caesar himself. And, And if I say something, it gets done. And you wrong us and you will be beheaded. You'll be put in prison. I have this power. There isn't a force stronger than the Roman Empire on the face of the earth. We've conquered every foe. There's nothing left to conquer. I get it. I have pledged my authority to Rome and thus I have a tribune that I report to and a hundred men report to me. And I say go and they go and I say jump and they say how high. I recognize as he says to Jesus, Lord, he says, I recognize like me that you have a kingdom. But you have a greater kingdom than that which I have been serving. And I submit to you. Your word is far more powerful than mine or Caesar's. And I come to you on behalf of someone I love that my kingdom considers chattel, cattle, less than human. But my heart has been touched by that servant. And I don't care what you do to me or what they do to me, which you save him. Greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. And this same centurion days earlier was probably one who sat on the Mount of Beatitudes and listened to Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Hmm. This is a man who heard these words and confirmed what he'd already been doing. And we know that he'd already been doing these words because he had built the synagogue to give these people that Rome hated a place to worship. I don't know if he had ever read Micah chapter six, but he certainly reflects it. The question is asked of the man, with what shall I come before the Lord in Micah 6 and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, a th- with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And God responds, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. This man loved justice and he loved mercy and he walked humbly. Humble to consider others better than yourself. This man reflected the words of Micah. This man who had sworn allegiance to Rome, who understood. The value Rome had put on slaves, which was nothing, is now pleading with a God of a greater kingdom save this man, regardless of what happens to me. He pushed aside prejudice and religion. He said, There has to be a right way. This isn't it. He had seen all that Rome had to offer and found it lacking. He said, if there is a God in heaven, I imagine in his heart, he said, if there is a God in heaven, there is a right way to treat other human beings. And this is not it. I know they are the enemy, but let me help them worship that they can find you if they seek you with all their heart. And at great expense to himself, he invested in their community. Meditate on that. I'm blessed by this story. I'm touched by it. It's one of these moments in life where you look and you think, God, what have I been doing? I think of John Cummings. Everything he said, I'm opposed to. And I found myself praying for him every day this week. Last service, we had an elder come up, Keith Jones. Keith's 35 years old. He's been working for the Conejo Valley Unified School District for nine years. He opposed the unions and everything they stood for and realized if I'm going to have an effect and step into that culture, I need to be in the union. And he joined the union a year ago. They were so thankful to have him. They put him in the place where he would interview all the possible school board candidates. (laughs) He's a good man. They said, if you're a member of the union, you have to do student teaching and allow student teachers to shadow you and follow you, and you have to invest in them, and we assign a student teacher to you. And John said, if that's what the union requires, that's what my delight is to do. And they assigned him a 56-year-old man. He's 35. They assigned him a 56-year-old man to shadow him. And he got to know him. And this 56-year-old man had a neat conversation. He said, tell me a little bit about your life. I want to know the why and what you do. He said, well, I'm 56 years old. I'm married, and my husband teaches Christianity at Cal Lutheran University. You got me right. The man said, my husband teaches Christianity at Cal Lutheran. John's had um, excuse me, Keith's had some really good conversations and has found himself praying every day. Interestingly enough, this teacher is also part of indivisible conejo, who's monitoring me. (laughs) You know, we get to a place in life where our prejudice clouds our love and our desire for the lost. I got some emails from folks. I got back from Dallas for my third viewing of The Shack. The first time I viewed The Shack, I went just to enjoy it, and I loved it. Second time I went, I went pretending myself to be a non-believer in how I would receive the movie. And the third time I went, after having received all these emails from Christendom, that this is a heretical movie and to stay away from it and don't let your people, why are you promoting it? And I got it all. And if you were planning on sending me a letter, I've already received it, so don't worry. And I listen, I understand. I understand universalism. I, I understand the fine line that it walks. I, I think the movie is much stronger than the book in defending the tenets of the Christian faith. I, I, I see all of your concerns. But don't forget, 22 million copies have been sold. Amazon put it in fictional drama and they didn't put it in the Christian category. And And as I was preparing to go see it for the third time, having received letters, and and at the same time, I'm getting a text from a friend who's an apologist for the Christian faith telling me I'm dead wrong, stay away from that thing. I'm sitting in the hair salon, hair salon, super cuts. And and I'm just finishing reading the text, and, and I put it down, just burdened by it. And the lady who's cutting my hair has been doing it for four years. I've witnessed to her for four years. She's a hard nut to crack. She's And her biggest turnoff is Christians coming in, wanting to do the four spiritual laws and laying it out. And just, she's so like burned out on, they don't even know my name and they're just reciting just stuff. And I have a heart for her and I've been praying for her and she's cutting my hair. And she says, so are you traveling this week? Because she knows I travel. I go, yeah, I'm leaving tomorrow morning. Oh, where are you going? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to Dallas for a, a screening of a movie that's based on a book that sold 22 million copies new york times bestseller she goes i go you've probably heard of it she goes what is it I goes, it's called the shack she goes i've never heard of it she goes well, what is it about i said well it's a fascinating story it's i don't even know where to begin i said um as i'm going okay keep out the god stuff stay in the t- i'm going "It's a fascinating As i'm aligning my thought process be all things to all men and, and i i said well it, it the story opens with a young boy whose father is an elder in a church and an alcoholic who beats his mother and beats him. And he's so burdened by it, after a beating, he, he, he puts strychnine in his father's alcohol and it insinuates that he's killed his father, but we don't know. And in the midst of all of his turmoil and the bruising of his face, he befriends this black woman who loves on him and just cares for him in the midst of the chaos of his own broken family. And then it fast forwards to him as an adult, And his wife is really into church. His kids are into church, but he's kind of distant, but he sits with them. And as he's sitting in church and the family's holding together, he's trying to hold this together with the past behind him. His youngest daughter's abducted and murdered. They take him up into the hills to identify his daughter's dress and the bloodstains. And it's in a shack up in the mountains. She goes, the name? I go, yeah, the shack. And I said, and then... It fast forwards to the family falling apart because of the turmoil and the trauma that they've experienced. And the, the mother takes the two kids to the sister's house so that the daughter can get some counseling. He stays home during a great storm. The snow's falling and he sees in his mailbox, no tracks to the mailbox, but sees a letter in the mailbox, opens it up and it says, meet me at the shack, Papa. She goes, oh, <laughs> is it his dad? I said, no, and I'm not gonna tell you. She goes, oh, that is not fair. <laughs> and she says, who is it? And I said, I'm not going to tell you. She says, is there a trailer? I said, yeah, the trailer's been through the roof, people watching, and they can't wait to see it. She goes, I'll go see the trailer. I go, oh, well, the trailer's going to tell you who Papa is, so I better prepare you. She goes, okay, I'm listening. I said, before I prepare you with who Papa is, I just want to ask you a question. If you were going to present God to somebody, would you present God as a black woman? She goes, well, some people would. I said, I didn't ask that question. I said, would you? She said, me? No, I wouldn't. Uh, no, I, I, I wouldn't do that. I said, neither would I. And neither would most pastors that I sit with. As a matter of fact, when you see the movie and Papa is portrayed as God in the form of a black woman, every pastor in the movie is with their hands crossed going. <laughs> and every agnostic and atheist and non churchgoers over here going, was this one of those church films? And at the end of the movie, both sides of the aisle are like, that's the best movie I've ever seen in all my life. I, just, I don't know what happened. It just touched me deep. I just tore apart. Come hug me. And the pastor's are hug and the agnostics. And it's a great time. <laughs> and I said, I, said, <laughs> I said to her, I go, I go, this question is posed to Papa, the black woman by Mac who lost his daughter. He says, look, if you're all powerful and all loving, how did you let God, how did you let this happen to my daughter? And it strikes me that you being God abandon the people who love you the most when they need you the most. You abandoned me, you abandoned my daughter, and you abandoned your son. At which point she points to the scar on her wrist as God the Father, which theologically we are going to struggle with. She says, don't think I wasn't there when my son was dying. Now Christians go, no, no, no. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why has that forsaken me? And some of us go, well, that's because God was schizophrenic and the Trinity was broken and I don't know how to explain that. And others will go, well, you can't portray God the Father as a woman. Okay, I get it. Back off, cowboy. After I finished, hang on with me, stay with me. After I finished, she says, when does it come out? I said, March 3rd. She says, okay. And she's taking her phone. She's trying to put it in. I go, listen, I have a, a early showing March 2nd. I can get you a ticket for it. She says, you do that? I said, Yeah. She goes, do you have any extras for my, for, I go, how many do you need? I want to take my staff. How many is that? (laughs) And she says eight. And I said, yes, I'll get you eight tickets. She says, thank you. Now, the next time she's cutting my hair, and I don't care where you are, I'm not interested in universalism. I don't support universalism. I don't believe the movie supports universalism. You're going to be able to find some threads to pull apart. I'm not interested in that. Don't send me a letter. I just want to ask you this question. The next time she's cutting my hair, what do you think we're going to be talking about? Now, if you want to isolate in your barricade and not engage in the culture, which is this is a powerful bridge. I just witnessed it as I'm responding to my apologetic friend, I want to ask you in regards to the centurion. He really stepped out of his world. And the Jews sure stepped out of theirs. And this is a challenge. I close with this. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we- Now we know him, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God, the Father, was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconcile. Two people at odds, willing to be reconciled. How do we bring the world to the Father? Through Jesus. How did Jesus do it? He marveled at the faith of a pagan. What was so spectacular about the pagan? He submitted to the authority of a king greater than himself for the purpose of reaching people he hated and built them a place to worship. That's way out of our comfort zone. Are we going to yield to his kingdom or does ours take precedent? We got a problem on our hands here, folks. And we are the instruments of the power of God to reconcile the world to him. And you got to break down those barriers and build those bridges. And the reason why Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion is he understood authority. You want to protect your barricade? Fine. You want to be right? Fine. You want to step into that world and be stretched? I got to tell you, When I was walking along Borchard and I met Samir and I had prayed and I was scared, I said, God, would you send me a friend? And it wasn't any of you. It was a Muslim man named Samir who walked me into his world. We're going to worship And when we do, marvel at the faith of this centurion. Ask God to stretch your world. Not at the expense of truth, but at the application of it. And watch what God will do. If you're willing, he's able. I was scared to death that day, but I don't think I've ever been more used of the Lord in recent time than I was on last Sunday. I think it was more profound last Sunday there than I was here. Let the Lord stretch you. Pastor John's gonna lead us in worship. I want you to take advantage to pray this in. Don't leave here. Oh, good message. Let's go get something to eat. Pray it in. We need his strength. Let God move on your heart. Don't leave here without allowing him to touch you, allowing him to touch you. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, God for your faithfulness to touch us and to bless us, that you have given us this ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our lives, that we would be ministers of reconciliation. Show us how to do that. Through this example of one you marveled at, that he's a man under authority and recognized yours and stepped out of his comfort zone a man who his whole life had been seeking reconciliation to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with that God. He knew there was a better way and he did it. And you loved him and you were blessed by him, Lord. But then to think of Zebulun and Naphtali that you marveled at their unbelief, let that not be said of us in our affluence and our abundance that we're more concerned with protecting our things than we are with loving your people created in your image. Help us, God. Holy Spirit, may this be a holy moment that you would pour into us the significance of this word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.